Mum, where's my lunchbox? It's a sure sign the summer holidays are over when the school lunchboxes are hauled out again. A more sober reminder is the expense involved in going back to school. I've got a 14-year-old and a 13-year-old. The 13-year-old's just about to start college with the 14-year-old. Then I've got an 8-year-old that's still at primary school. I'd say we're a very average family with an average income and, and we cope. Uh, obviously paying less would be, would be really good. For the Candy family of Waikanae, getting their three daughters through the school gate is a costly business. We um, went off and got books for the, for the three of them. Um, we spent about $100 just today. And then um, one of my daughters informs me when she goes to school, there'll also be books to buy from school. So we've, um, we've got those to, to pay for, which I'll have no idea until she gets to school. I sort of understand that the school fees for a college is going to be $100 per child. So we're probably looking at $200 bill at the beginning of the, um, the year too to cover their school fees. Lee Candy says with her second daughter Jade starting high school this year, a new uniform was also on the shopping list. We've spent about 250 on Jade's uniform and that involves a skirt, a couple of tops, yeah, and a, and a jersey really, that, that was about it, and, and socks. Um, we've just spent 120 on shoes for her today and that's not counting the $100 jacket which we'll get uh, when we need it. We just don't get it at this stage. And she's also borrowing her sister's PE gear so we don't have to buy that. So that's not included, which would probably be about another $60, I guess, if we had to pay for that. And then add on school fees. One, two, three, four, four, probably about 450 for her. Uh, Hannah, that's got all her uniform, will be having the school fees of $100. And then Kelly, well, she, she's the one still at primary school. I guess we'll be looking at maybe $60 for a, a school fees for her. And, of course, at the beginning of every term, we get activities fees as well. So they average, I was just looking, they average about $40 per term normally. Nationals Education spokesperson Catherine Rich says it's clear the education system is no longer as free as it once was. We're still in a country where people think we have a free education system but that's wearing very thin and any parent who looks at the level of donations they make and all the additional costs for often uh, curriculum based activities knows that uh, it's not as free as we would aspire to and I think one of the important things we need to do as a country is have a debate about what we expect from our school system because expectations have changed dramatically over the last 30 years about what we expect in terms of information technology sort of activities our children do and there needs to be a greater clarity because some of the constituent issues that I face are parents wondering about which bits they should pay for or not pay for and leads to a lot of angst I think and a lot of debate around the board table about what they can and cannot charge for. In only the past week, Fielding High School in the Manawatu hit the headlines when it barred a number of students from class because they hadn't paid outstanding fees. The school's principal, Roger Menzies, told Radio New Zealand he had the right to charge for courses with a take-home content, such as photography and woodwork. From my understanding, all schools charge a small take-home component. So if, let's say it's a, a geography class, there's photocopying paper, that might be a $2 charge to cover materials that those kids take home. Now that's common practice in all schools. While the school may have taken extreme measures... The underlying issue of what schools can and can't charge for is a grey area. Catherine Rich. I've had discussions with officials on this point and they will say we do think that 
the specifications are clear. But I disagree with that because I'm faced with constituents who are unsure about what they're being asked to pay for. And in some cases, when I've gone back and queried things with the Ministry of Education, they've then gone back to the school and said, no, you can't charge for this. That's a, that was a core part of the curriculum. So if parents are wondering and boards of trustees are wondering and schools are wondering, I think it is necessary for us to go back and restate what you can and can't pay for. One good example that came up at the end of last year, one school was wanting a non-custodial parent to pay $20 for additional copies of a school report. Now putting aside the debates about whether or not $20 is a reasonable cost for simply photocopying a bit of paper, I think most parents would say, no, paying for school reports isn't something that I think should be an additional cost. The euphemistic school donation is also a source of confusion. Parents in the main regard donations as a fee, particularly as most schools set the level of donation required. The vexed issue of what the government should provide under the banner of free education was the subject of a summit called late last year by the lobby group Quality Public Education Coalition. The president of QPEC, teacher and long-time social justice campaigner John Minto, says there's now a serious threat to the education system. The government is progressively underfunding education. The the proportion of of government funding going into schools and um, and the tertiary sector is decreasing. So therefore the, the funding that parents have to provide for schools or that students have to provide to go to tertiary education is increasing. And so the system is very much under threat. John Minto says the consequences of that are worrying. What that means is that the the quality of education a school can provide is increasingly dependent on the ability of parents to put their hands in their their pockets. And that's not just for the extras that a school provides, but it's actually hitting at at the core curriculum areas. And so schools that can't make up the difference between government funding and what they know is needed for high quality education, that number of schools is increasing. And the, and the stress or the strain on quality is becoming quite acute. Representatives from the two teacher unions told the summit what that means in practice. The NZDI's president, Irene Cooper. I think we've always had a, a philosophy that education in this country was free and parents should expect that. But the reality has not been there. What we're getting is more and more complexity to education, schools making local decisions and parents funding the difference. But no one's saying what it is that a school should provide. And I think, um, so there's some fudging on it. So we don't know what operations grants are paying for. We don't know what parents can expect as of right. And we don't really know what the decision-making process is around all the other bits that they seem to be providing for. The former PPTA president, Debbie Tefaiti, says some schools are heavily reliant on parental support. Some schools are in the position of having to rely so heavily on that income that they, they're, they're employing debt recovery sorts of services to do it. And I've been privy to some fairly um, sad and angry um, interchanges between schools and, and parents about the fact that the money is still not there, that their kid is coming to the end of year 12 and they've got several hundred dollars owing and what are you going to do about this and can you do to- time payments and so on and so forth. I mean, this is business. This is not education. John Minto says parents are getting fed up with the financial demands schools are placing upon them. 
parents are now saying, well, hang on a minute, we're supposed to have a free education, but I'm seeing every year I'm being asked for 50 bucks extra from, from my school. Well, stuff that. So parents are resisting that. And in a sense, that's good, because parents are saying, hey, look, this is actually the government's responsibility to provide this, not mine. And most parents, in most surveys, say they would, be, they would prefer not to have tax cuts if it means their kids stop coming home from school with more and more requests for money. The president of the School Trustees Association, Lorraine Kerr, says schools are increasingly relying on locally raised funds, which include parental contributions, donations, international fee-paying students and all manner of fundraising ventures. Well, I know one school that relies entirely on um, pub charity funding to assist them with with their extras, um, other schools major sporting events, Um, some have things like major raffle days because the days of school galas aren't working now either. I I think fundraising itself has got to saturation point. Candy's home, 14-year-old Hannah, gets down to music practice. Lee Candy says all her girls learn the piano and all started their music lessons attending their local primary school. She says it's the unexpected educational costs which put pressure on the family budget. You know that at the beginning of each term you're going to get these activities fees, um, you're going to have to pay some of your school fees, and often that's an unknown cost too. You know, you don't know what... Uh, for that term the, the school might have, you know, that, that the children might be doing. Jade last year went on a school ski camp. They did an awful lot of fundraising for that and, and we helped in her with that and um, that was about 250 I think. The year before she went on a uh, school camp that was $60. So there's all those sort of costs as, as they get up a bit older and uh, get into, I guess, intermediate age. For several years, the School Trustees Association has campaigned against the rising costs for parents in a so-called free education system. In 2005, shortly before the election, the government announced it would hold a review of schools' operational funding, the money schools use to pay their day-to-day costs. A year later, two reports on school funding emerged, one from the review and one from the Education Review Office. The reports revealed that 43% of schools were running a deficit in 2004 compared to 29% in 1995. They also showed that while government grants increased in real terms by about 36% during that time, local fundraising per student increased by 88%. However, the Minister of Education, Steve Mahari, says the proportion of money contributed by parents has remained static. The state has been lifting its investment quite dramatically over the last few years in particular. And so could we, could we say that the, the um, ordinary household in proportion is lifting the amount it's investing in education? No, we can't. The figures show it runs at about 8 to 9% at a static level. And I'll pass those figures on to you because there they run down down there, 8, 8, 9. It stays much the same. So... No doubt parents, as I say, and raw money, um, we're talking about both them and the state lifting their, their amount of money going in, but proportionately it stayed much the same. The School Trustees Association begs to differ. Lorraine Kerr. Their proportion may have remained static, but in terms of the extra funding that schools are increasingly seeking 
from parents, um, that's increased and increases every year. The association says the government works out the proportions of who is paying what by comparing locally raised funds, the money schools raise themselves, with the overall schooling budget. That's about $5.5 billion, the bulk of which goes on teacher salaries and property costs. The association says the more proper comparison is with the money which schools actually have control over, the operational grants funding, which amounts to about $1 billion. It points out that in 2005, schools raised almost $500 million themselves. The dispute over numbers aside, Lorraine Kerr says that anyway, the review of operations grants provided compelling evidence of inadequate funding. But while schools were looking for more money, the review recommended more review. The Minister of Education, Steve Mahari. The aim of the, the work has always been to try and get a better understanding of what it actually costs to run a modern school. The work that was produced by uh, the people who came as part of the Working Party and the Ministry in Aero uh, was to try and provide a, a solid basis for that understanding. And what we've got, I think, is a, is a reasonable understanding of some parts of that. But there's still quite a lot of work to do in areas like um, support staff, for example. Surely the point of that review was to find out if they've got enough money. Yes, and what I'm saying is I don't think they actually got to that. That was the point of it, and there's quite a lot of work gone on here. But I think they've found that there are some questions, like support staff, that require a bit more of a you know, long-term look at. For example, when I started as an MP 16 years ago, if I went and knocked on the door of my local school, I might have bumped into a few support staff, traditional people like the ones who ran the library, but maybe one person who was doing some teacher aiding. If I go to a school now, I might bump into like 20, 30 uh, staff who are in these kinds of positions. Do you accept that parents are having to top up what the government should be providing? I'd accept that parents have always been asked for some kind of donation in, in the school system, not just our own, but school systems around the world. I think that what's changed from the days that, say, I went to, to school and, and I might have been asked for a, to bring along a bit of money for a school trip or something, uh, is that the importance of education has risen dramatically, particularly at the end of the last century so that in all countries now there's an enormous amount of pressure on public budgets to deliver enough money to provide 21st century education, which includes you know, wages for teachers, ICT, changes in buildings, all sorts of things. And education is now a huge amount of money for all countries to find. Now, under that pressure, um, parents are undoubtedly looking for the best education for their child, and therefore you, you do get more discussion about, well, uh, should there be more of a donation to the school so I can have an addition to ICT or an addition to going on field trips or an addition to something else in the education system? The School Trustees Association was surely disappointed in a review that came up with more questions than answers. Not so, says the association's president, Lorraine Kerr. In terms of that statement, that's good for us in terms of they haven't just stopped it there that that the, we need to do a whole lot more has lined up with the more they discussed, the more there were questions that needed to be answered and those questions haven't been answered yet. I would have thought though that your position would have been that by the time the review got underway you had made your case, given that you'd been saying that there hasn't been enough money for many years. That's quite correct, but in terms of what's come out of that review, the questions aren't ours. The, um, the questions remain with the powers that be, with the Ministry of Education. Are they just trying to buy a bit of time? 
I wouldn't like to comment. Mrs Kerr may be loath to comment, but the fact remains that, in the meantime, the government has been let off the hook in terms of providing immediate answers to some of the fundamental questions underlying the review, such as what does constitute a free education and what should parents be able to expect as of right. Steve Mahari. That's, I think, the, the big conundrum that the, the operations grant people were struggling with in, in a modern education system. What is it? that the state should pay for at a, re- for at, a, at a reasonable level to give a quality education and if there are extras is it reasonable then to go and ask parents for a donation to pay for those kinds of things that's a, that's a piece of work that's incredibly difficult to get an answer to and I don't know any country who easily rises at that question but that's what we're trying to do through the oper- operations grant review Until the review is able to answer those big questions boards are pinning their hopes on this year's budget for some help with their more pressing financial woes. At the same time, many in the education sector say it's time to look at whether the reforms, known as tomorrow's schools, that were introduced almost two decades ago should be revisited. Parents were promised a greater say in how their children's schools were run, but have they just become useful fundraisers? John Langley, the Dean of Education at the University of Auckland, believes the increasing financial pressure on parents is one effect of the tomorrow's schools reforms. I think it was a sleight of hand um, because what other system do we have um, where you would get a group of elected parents, put them in legal charge of an entity, um, give them governance responsibility and, and, and make them accountable for all of that and pay them hardly anything? Um, that's That's at one level. The other level, though, is, is that it does require parents to pay more because what we've seen over the last few years, uh, regardless of the government that's been in power actually, um, is either uh, parents paying to send their kids to independent schools because they perceive those schools are offering a better education or um, they're, they're paying vast sums of money, those who can afford it, to, to buy into uh, the zones of state schools that they perceive to be delivering a better education as well. Uh, So I think whichever way you look at it, um, it it is costing some people more. In their model flat at the Kauai Intermediate School, these girls are learning mothercraft, something important these days when population means much to New Zealand. The babies like it, but the girls have had lots of practice on celluloid dolls. The post-World War II education system evolved from the major reforms of the first Labour government. A towering figure of the time was Clarence Beebe, who, as Director General of Education, articulated an egalitarian vision to rebuild and modernise the system. He wrote famously that the government's objective, broadly expressed, was that every person, whatever his level of academic ability, whether he be rich or poor, whether he live in town or country, had a right as a citizen to a free education of the kind for which he was best fitted and to the fullest extent of his powers. Dr Beebe's words are cited regularly by the Education Minister, Steve Mahari. I'm a Beebe person. I believe absolutely in the notion that uh, you, you, you should have the right to go as far as you can go and so that that's not going to be just some sort of pie-in-the-sky idea. There has to be that commitment from the state to keep the doors to education open. It's what served my generation and, and, and will serve this generation as well. The CUPEC summit late last year, however, was far from convinced that Dr Beebe would have approved of the current setup. The group's vice chair, Ivan Snook, emeritus professor of education at Massey University, says despite the constant invoking of the Beebe ideal, he suspects the so-called father of education would be appalled at what's happened to schools. It's a kind of idealised Beebe, isn't it? If you take the famous quote 
which they love saying, and really take it apart, that everyone in the country, whatever his level of ability, whether they be rich or poor, whether they live in town or country, shall have a right to a free education of the kind for which they are best fitted, to the fullest extent of their powers. It doesn't mean a free education just for a few years, but from the beginning to PhD, if you're up to it, um, that's gone. All is left is a kind of fuzzy slogan. Back at the Waikanae home of the Candy family, it's time for eight-year-old Kelly to get ready for her first piano lesson of the year, while her mother Lee continues to tot up the school start-up costs. Probably about 12 k's to the college, um, but we tend to use, or Hannah tends to use the bridge over to Otahanga Domain, which means she can bike, um, and she tends to use biking or walking as much as she can. Yeah, if you're catching the bus, Hannah, how much is that? Uh, it's about a dollar for one trip. While the Candy family is happy with a state education, do increasing costs mean some parents are looking to educate their children in the private system? The chief executive of the Independent Schools Association, Joy Quigley, says in some cases the fees parents pay for state integrated schools are on a par with private school fees. It gets back to where their expenses are and if they make a decision that they would perhaps not, they can't get in zone so therefore they will get a house that's perhaps going to be equally as nice but in a lower priced area and put the transport in place and then put the money into school fees. And we've got cases of, of you know, well documented cases where people do that. They make a decision to live somewhere other than a zoned area because we know zoning increases the capital cost of a house by maybe fifty to a hundred thousand depending on the area. They'll take that money, get an equally nice house further out or away out of zone and then free up that money and they can use it for the um, school fees. What about the size of your sector? Is it increasing? It's pretty static? It is steadily growing. It's probably the fastest growing of the three, state, state integrated and independent. Um, we have been, we're now up to just on 4% of the population. So we're starting from, you know, 35 to 4%. But in terms of percentage increase, independent schools have certainly been holding their own. They, 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 they need you. Give a little help, stand in line. Be a trustee, give a little time. Come on, New Zealand, become a trustee. Come and support your local school. They're your kids and it's their future. Nominations are open now. Contact your local school. It's been more than 17 years since the introduction of tomorrow's schools and boards of trustees. The seventh lot of school board elections are being held this year. But not all of the country's 2,500 schools will hold elections. In 2004, only a little over half had more candidates than board places needing to be filled. There doesn't appear to be a rush on to become a school trustee. Like John Langley from the University of Auckland, some in the school sector are asking whether the trustee model is the best form of school governance and whether it does in fact reflect the view of a school's parents or just the parents who sit on the board. Dr Langley. It's high time 
um, that we had a good look at all of those and that we don't just keep chugging along a pathway that is not going to produce what it needs to produce for our young people. What should they be doing? Well, the first thing I would do is to look at the governance structure. I think it's a fine old thing that parents are members of boards of trustees, but I think it's absurd in a country of New Zealand size and with the resources that we have that every individual school, regardless of whether it's one or two teachers or whether it's 100 teachers, has its own board of trustees. What I would like to see happen is is that we, we take the board concept and move it a bit so that we end up with a more formal grouping within any given educational community of schools and that, that within that formal grouping there would be one board of trustees that covered that whole cluster of schools. There would be one strategic plan. Instead of having schools within the cluster, some of which got to 3,000 pupils and some of which were kind of a third of that size or whatever, there would be a combined commitment on the part of the schools in that cluster to be making all of them work and producing a high quality education for the kids regardless of which school they went to. The other thing which can come out of that of course is that you can then get schools specialising. Instead of this ridiculous business that we've got where you've got every school producing the same thing or trying to in the same way and being evaluated accordingly, what would be wrong with one particular school in that cluster saying, right, we're going to specialise in a particular area, we're going to resource ourselves to specialise in that area, it might be science or physical education or something, and another school to do something else. It would also mean that you could then get pupils moving between some of those schools, in city areas at least, and you could get teachers moving between some of those schools as well. So that instead of having this business where everybody is locked into one school all the time, you would get a much freer flow around a community. You would get to have to define what the community meant a lot more. And you would also have a situation, hopefully, where instead of schools, kind of we have this sort of dust bowl competitive model, they would actually have to cooperate in a formal sense with each other uh, to produce the best results for the community. Professor Ivan Snook says the PICO report, which led to the introduction of tomorrow's schools and the reforms themselves, have not necessarily achieved what they were supposed to. Despite what PICO and tomorrow's schools intended, or seemed to intend, that parents would be closely involved in the educational side of their school, despite that, it seems to be that the Board of Trustees indeed have got a good deal of control over the school. But that doesn't always reflect what the parents want. So we probably are starting to create a bit of a bureaucracy even there at the school level with people who are running the school who are still not, although they may be parents or have been parents, are still not in touch with what uh, parents are asking for. The Minister of Education, Steve Mahari, agrees the time is right for what he's calling a stock take. I do want to have a look at who are we getting now uh, on the boards. Uh, Are they serving the schools in the way that was intended? Uh, Are they getting the kind of support that they need? Are we getting the right kind of support for schools from their governance process across all schools? Because there's always this talk about these people over here have access to people with a lot of skills, these people over here don't. Is that disadvantaging one school against the other? And there's been a little bit of writing about this of late and that attracted my attention. And I thought, yeah, we've had a number of elections now. Once this one's over, no one's questioning whether we should have boards. I'm a big fan of them. I like the partnership model. I think it stood up well. I think it served us well. But can we tweak this to to have a, a look at ways of ensuring we're getting more from it than up till now? That's what I want to have a look at. The School Trustees Association supports a stock take, but what boards really want is more money. In the meantime, parents like Lee Candy will continue to count the cost of a free education.